Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Welcome to episode number 303 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Today, I'm going to tell you the top six lessons that I learned from when I played the best doubles of my life. And it really wasn't even close. It was a kind of a magical weekend for me. I was in the zone the entire time. And I've kind of distilled down the, the top lessons that I learned from that experience into six action items that you can use and take to the court your very next match for the most part. They're, some of them are mental toughness related. Some are strategies. Some are tactics. Some are partner management. So a little bit of everything here. I'm going to try to move through as quickly as possible. This could easily become a pretty long episode, but I'm going to try to keep things nice and snappy. And so first and foremost, let me give you just a little bit of background, a little bit of context, so you understand how this story came about and exactly how this, for me, this really high level of play came to pass. Uh, it was my junior year of college. I played three years of NCAA tennis. I didn't make the team my freshman year. I walked on my sophomore year, and this story takes place my junior year. So the, the season before, I had just walked on the team, and I was playing the bottom of the lineup. I was, uh, by the way, walking on means that I didn't, I was not recruited. I, I had to make the team by trying out, and I, I went through that process. My freshman year did not make it. And I practiced and trained a tremendous amount my freshman year and walked on my sophomore year. And then heading into my junior year, I was playing number six singles and number three doubles, which is the, the last spot in both singles and doubles. And my coach came to me one day and said, hey, Ian, the, the NCAA regional tournament is coming up. And at the beginning of the season, the, the first semester is when we have our individuals, uh, our individual NCAA tournaments, meaning it's not the team playing against another team. There's a bracket for number one doubles, a bracket for number two doubles, a bracket for number three doubles, and you play against all the other players at that slot to see which in your region and which in the country are, are the best. And so my coach came up at practice one day and said, hey, Ian, one of the other players who just transferred in was one of the strongest people on our on our team. Unfortunately, there was a problem with his transfer, and he was not eligible to play in the first semester. And so he was paired up with our number one player, the strongest player on our team at the number one double spot, and I had to take his place. And so I was being bumped from number three doubles up to number one doubles with the best player on our team completely unexpectedly. And I found out about it relatively last minute. And so the, the our number one doubles team normally would be seated number one or number two out of a draw of 32 teams. Instead, I went in with our best player completely unseated because you know I we he wasn't expected to do very much with me because I was not his normal partner and I was the weakest player who was playing on the lineup. So we went in completely unseated and we... I ended up playing out of my mind the entire tournament. We ended up making it to the finals. And along the way, I learned six lessons, most of which I learned from my partner, who was this, uh, who was an incredible doubles player. And it was a great learning experience for me to play with him. 
And so I'm going to walk through six different things in that environment of being, you know, feeling like I really didn't belong there, feeling like I was kind of holding my partner back, but then having an incredible kind of uh, out of my mind, like in the zone experience. So here's the top six lessons that I learned. Number one, this phrase will forever ring in my head. The number one lesson that I learned was make them play. Three simple words. Early on in the tournament, as we went into our first round, I was I felt a ton of pressure to just hit incredible shot after incredible shot. I wanted to I, I was great. I was really good friends with this person that I got paired up with, uh, the the strongest player on our team. I didn't want to let him down, and I I knew I was the weakest player on the court basically every time that we played an opponent, and so I felt a tremendous amount of pressure to hit incredible shot after incredible shot. And so I was, I started out definitely the first match really hyped up, juicing everything, trying to hit perfect shots, and. The phrase that Jason, my, my partner, told me, he's, he saw this happening and he knew I couldn't keep it up. And I, I probably came out with a couple of great shots, but I'm sure I also started to miss some shots. And he knew there's no way I could maintain that level of kind of excitement and that level of, uh, of just trying to hit everything as hard and as aggressive as I possibly could. There's no way we could go through one, one match with me maintaining that much less two or three or four, if we were going to make it all the way through the tournament. So the phrase that he kind of instilled in my head was make them play. And what he wanted was just to get the point started. And he wanted to take the pressure off of me of playing a 10 out of 10. And he wanted to make sure that our opponents had a chance to mess up. And this is crucial, not just in doubles, but but singles as well. But I think in doubles, we have this mindset of we, we've got to come up with it. We got to be a shot maker. We need to avoid that net player. And so we try to hit a winner instead of just let the net player hit a ball, let make them prove that they can put the ball away. And I felt all this pressure because I knew I was the weakest person on the court, uh, uh, but he immediately just kind of made sure I understood that my number one job was not to hit winners, but just put the ball in play. Not only does it give the opponent a chance to mess up, but it also gave, gave Jason the opportunity to be in the point and make something happen himself. And so I remember at one point after telling me, usually when he told me was before I was going to return serve. Because that's when I really had a tendency to uh, to really kind of go for broke and just kind of win the point right off the first shot. And so there was one point in particular I, I remember really clearly where he reminded me to, to make them play. And I kind of calmed down. I relaxed. I took a calm swing at the ball, put the ball in play. The net player on the other side cut it off. But when they volleyed it at Jason's feet, Jason engaged with them and he had ended up winning the rally. And so he turned around and immediately credited me for the point and said, awesome, you know, great job. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Just make them play. That way, Jason at least would have an opportunity to insert himself into the point and make something happen. If I would just go for broke over and over and over again, then I, sure, I would hit a couple great shots here and there, but ultimately I would probably cost us the match. So lesson number one, make them play. 
Lesson number two is manage the momentum. And I've got two different examples here that I'll go through quickly. Here's the thing. There's there's always going to be ebbs and flows and ups and downs, back and forth, kind of a, a push and pull of momentum in just about every match. The only reason why it wouldn't happen is if it's completely lopsided. And so if you want to maximize your chances for success, it's critical that you're attuned to when those momentum shifts happen so that you can either maximize them when they come in your direction or minimize them when they go towards your opponents. And so I'll give you a quick example of both. Uh, first, maximizing. There was a point in the mat in one of the matches where we won a point to break serve, and it was to go up 5-4. And breaking serve was huge because we were playing eight-game pro sets. And that means it's one set, first team to eight games wins, win by two. And and so a break of serve is huge. Like If you're up a break, it, you're really in a very commanding position in the match because you only have to win one set to win the match. So Jason and I break serve. We, we high-five. We st it's a changeover games. It's it's five four. We start walking over towards our side of the net to take a changeover, and as we get close to our chairs and to our water, Jason like softly under his breath, uh, just kind of whispered to me, "Keep walking," and and I was like, "What?" And he's like, "Just just keep walking," and I was like, I was definitely confused, but I was like, "Okay, whatever." And so I followed him around the net post as he walked right past our stuff over to the other side. And so as our opponents were sitting down with their water to rest, we just walked straight over to our side of the court, the, the new side of the court. We quickly set up our plan for the, the next points on Jason's serve. And then we took our positions and just started bouncing back and forth <laughs> while, our, while our opponents are just sitting there looking at us. And so... I feel like they definitely felt a little bit of pressure. They saw us. It's like, you know, what the what are these guys doing? Number one, it's like, what, don't they need a drink? Two, like, don't they want to rest a little bit? And three, like, what should we like go out there? Like they're kind of waiting for us. And so they definitely got a little bit rushed through that changeover. They've they kind of hurried hurriedly kind of came out to get ready to return. We quick held that game at love. And then boom, the pressure's right back on them on their serve again. And we're trying to keep the momentum swinging hard in our, in our favor, in our direction. And so little things like that can help maximize the, the energy, the flow of, of momentum and points in your favor. And that's just one kind of quick example. Another example of when we had definitely lost a bunch of points in a row was we got together in between points to talk. I think we had just lost kind of a critical point in a critical game. The momentum was not in our favor. And as we got together to kind of plan the next point, <laughs> I don't officially condone this, but Jason dropped a ball and then kicked it so that it rolled into the corner of the court. We were kind of like up around the, the service line. He dropped the ball, kicked it in the corner, and then was like, come here. And so we, we both walked to go get the ball together, gave us a little bit of extra time, and it was his way of just slowing things down. And so this is something that definitely, I, I think I was aware of, but, but Jason really taught me how to manage it in real time. And so you can either speed things up 
when when the momentum is with you, you should be actively trying to keep things moving. When the momentum is against you, you should be doing whatever you can to slow things down, buy yourself some time, keep your opponent from rolling hard in a positive direction for them, and try to regain a foothold or a handhold and try to get yourself back into the into the set or into the match. So as lesson number two was managing the momentum. Those are two specific ways that, that I saw Jason do that. It was a big lesson for me. Number three, doubles lesson, is keep the pressure on. And this was just a constant for us. And, and it fit, to be honest with you, like you need to know yourself. You need to know your personal style. Jason and I are both really aggressive net players. We both loved to close in on the net. Both had kind of a kamikaze uh, approach or mindset to doubles, both definitely kind of would err on the side of running head first into trouble and and not be passive. Uh, but even more so in this instance where usually I was the weakest player on the courts, we had to keep the pressure on. And that meant serve and volley. I, I don't think either of us stayed back one serve the entire tournament. Uh, we played five matches together. And anytime we would stay back, it was definitely communicated ahead of time. Like that was the exception to the rule. Returning and volleying is a little bit trickier. We did that whenever possible. Whenever we knew we were getting the ball past the opposing net player on the return of serve, we were definitely coming in behind that unless we felt like we really floated it up to the the serving player and they were coming forwards. But serve and volley was just kind of a given. Return and volley was a given as long as we were avoiding the net player. And just generally speaking, we were improving our position whenever possible. Not just serve and return, but once a point got started, the longer and longer a point went, as long as we weren't giving our opponents opportunities, we were inching our way forwards or one step at a time, two steps at a time. Whatever we could do to improve our position, because a critical doubles strategy principle is whenever possible, hit down to your opponents and make them hit up to you. And the easiest way to hit down to your opponents is to be closer to the net, even by one step. One step closer makes it that much easier, geometrically speaking, to just hit directly at your opponent's side of the court. Meaning you no longer have to lift the ball over the top of the net. You can just, you're already in a position to hit directly at the other side and the best way to do that is to improve your position. So keeping the pressure on in that in that way was super important for us so that we could uh, kind of grab momentum in points and grab momentum in matches as quickly as possible and then try to just run with it and not give it back. So that's lesson number three out of six is keep the pressure on. Number four, one of my favorite ones here is keep them guessing. And we did this in several different ways. The Another really important strategy principle in doubles is don't let your opponents get comfortable. And part of that is pressure that we just talked about. Another part of it is if at any point in time your opponents can just take for granted what part of the court is available for them to hit to and which part is not, if they just know they have a safe spot to hit to, and if it's a repetitive safe spot, you're making it way too easy for your opponents to get comfortable, get in a groove, and win the match and take it from you. The best way to keep them uncomfortable is to create uncertainty in their minds. If they have to guess if cross court or down the line is the safe spot, point after point after point, 
then you will keep them uncomfortable and you will keep them guessing and second guessing themselves and wondering and and kind of always asking themselves, where in the world should I hit this next shot? That's what you want them asking themselves constantly. And so there's a couple ways of doing that. The most obvious and easy one is to do a lot of poaching and a lot of faking. And in this tournament with Jason, generally speaking, uh, when you see a doubles team playing together and they're using signals, which is not super common, you should be using signals. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Generally, there's going to be three different options on the signals uh, for what the net player is going to do. You'll see them point which direction to hit the serve, but then the second choice is what's the net player going to do? And usually there's three options, either fake or poach or stay. Poach means they're going to go across the middle and try to cut off a cross-court return of serve. Stay means they're just going to stay on the side they started on, and fake means they're going to do some shake and bake back and forth and try to bait the returner to hit down the line back to them. We weren't signaling fake. <laughs> yeah, we because it was a given. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me start over. We were not. We were not signaling stay. The signal was either was either going to poach or we were going to fake. And so really, uh, stay was not even like a, a question. Uh, all we needed to know was is is there going to be a, a planned poach where the net player is going across or is there not? And so if we were going to stay, it was a given that we were going to fake. And so we were always doing something is, is the moral of the story. And that's what keeps your opponents guessing. If you're always moving, always doing something, and you're either faking a poach or you are poaching, then that's your best bet as far as keeping them uncomfortable and keeping them guessing. So I would encourage you to think of it as staying is not even an option. Like you're, you're either going or you're faking that you're going. At no point should it be an option to just stand there and just tell your opponent, this is my spot, I'm staying in my spot, and I will not leave my spot. And just give them that whole half of the court, cross courts, which is the highest percentage shot, and just allow them to feel comfortable that that's going to be available point after point after point. That's number one. Uh, poaching and faking, just critical, basic. The second way that we kept our opponents guessing was doing a lot of eye formation, which is my absolute favorite. I refer to the eye formation as the Cadillac of doubles formations, and that's because it gives you so many options and different pairings between what the net player can do and where the server can aim. If you're not familiar with the eye formation, basically the server serves from right up against the hash mark, right in the middle of the baseline, and the net player crouches down low enough that the server could hit over the top of his or her head right on the center service line, give or take. And you'll see a little bit of variation on this, but right around the center service line, they're crouching down either in a squat or in more of a lunge position. And then once the serve hits the service box, that server's partner, the net player, is popping up and playing boogeyman, meaning they can plan ahead of time any number of things. The server could aim out wide or at the body or at the tee, and the net player, when they pop up, could go left, could go right, could fake one way but go the other, or they could just kind of camp out right in the middle and anticipate a hard shot right down the center of the court. And they're planning out ahead of time what that play is going to be so that the server knows exactly what to cover. And so Jason and I did a lot of this, in particular against good returning teams where they weren't really phased by our faking. 
and poaching and and maybe uh, they just weren't challenged very much by my serve and so we would do a lot of eye formation on my serve because Jason was a great net player and so if they weren't bothered much by my serve then we would throw them the next layer of challenge the next layer of uncertainty which was a lot of poaching if they were picking up on Jason's poaches, then we we would throw in the next layer of challenge and uncertainty. We would start doing a bunch of eye formation. We would first start to kind of throw it in and mix it in. And then if we would find it effective, then occasionally we would just kind of go all in and just do only eye formation for several games in a row. But the bottom line is do anything but just, quote, normal doubles, where you start one up, one back, the net player covers their side, the server covers their side, and you just play the shots that are hit to you, that's not good enough. That's not good enough against a good doubles team. And so lesson number four is keep them guessing. And I just gave you a bunch of different ways that you can do that. Lesson number five out of six. This is a big one. This has to do with partner management. Lesson number five is always give unconditional support. After winners, after errors, always, always go back to the middle, slap hands, whatever, whatever your routine is or your ritual is with your partner. And for those of you that play with somebody different every single match, this is, this is a tricky one, but still very doable and still your responsibility to learn how to read people, how to read partners and find out how they like to be supported and how they don't like to be supported. Some partners will like it. If you kind of joke around and, and make light of a mistake when they you know dump an overhead into the net, others will absolutely hate it. <laughs> Some doubles partners will love it. If you're high energy and you're kind of really hyped up and you kind of try to pump them up, others will absolutely hate it. That they'll just they'll hate that high energy and they, they kind of want you to be laid back. Like you can be hyped over on your side, but they don't want you to bring it over uh, to their side. And some partners will love to be encouraged. They'll, they'll want you to come over and kind of be like, oh, hey, don't worry about it. And oh, I miss those all the time too. Or, oh, hey, we got this one. Some players love that kind of encouragement and emotional support. Others totally are loners. And they don't really want you to kind of invade their space emotionally or with positive energy. Jason knew in that match, we thankfully we'd already known each other for, and we'd played with each other for a solid year, year and a half. Not together as partners, by the way. We'd never been partnered in actual competition before, but we he'd watched me play, I'd watched him play matches. We were teammates, like we practiced together, but we just never played together. So he knew that I couldn't get negative. He knew that if he let me go into a negative headspace, then it would probably be a downward spiral. So. He, he went way out of his way to support me after mistakes and, and keep my, my energy positive and, and kind of, you know, make light of mistakes and, and kind of tell a little joke and, uh, you know, say, say something that would kind of make us both laugh after I made a mistake. Those are all things that worked with me. And he knew that. And so that's the approach that he took. You have to be kind of an armchair psychologist out there. You have to pay, pay very close attention to your partners and all of your doubles partners will be different. And it's your job to figure them out and give them the support they need and withhold the type of energy that kind of takes them out of their optimal state. And let me be really clear about this. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. 
It's not your partner's job to come in and mold and meld themselves exactly to the type of person that you want to play with. It's your job to figure out who they are as a person and then give them the support that they need. There's a lot of complaining out there about doubles partners, uh, whether it's the tactical style they like to play or their personality. And listen, of course, there's going to be people out there that just rub us the wrong way. And there's certain personality types that just don't mesh very well with us. And uh, that just kind of comes with the territory and that's just life, right? No matter what, there's always going to be those people that you're just not on the same page with. But guess what? Sometimes they happen to be your doubles partner. And so the question you want to ask yourself is, do I want to give my team the best chance for success or am I going to be selfish and just wait for them to accommodate me? And if your attitude is always the latter and you're just waiting for your partner to meet you where you, where you want to be, then you're going to struggle forming good, strong, solid doubles partnerships with different types of partner. And this is just a critical skill. So unconditional support is critical in the way that your partner wants to be supported, in the way that most supports them and not the way that you necessarily uh, would like to be supported. And that's really a critical part. So that's number five. And sixth and finally, this is a big one, possibly the most basic one, but also one of the most important, always have a plan. And it's a combination of signals and talking. Not nearly enough doubles players use signals. And in fact, in my experience, most of my coaching experience was, was around average, you know, club-level players at tennis clubs. And there's almost kind of a stigma around using signals like, oh, you th- think you're so cool and like you're, you're so good. You're, like you're such a hot shot that you're using signals, which is really a shame because it's the best, most flexible way to be on the same page with your partner. The the other way, and you should use both actively, is talking in between points. Of course, be on the same page, get together. A lot of times when I suggest that players should use signals, they assume that I mean that, oh, so I don't think they should talk in between points. Absolutely not. You should be talking and using signals. You should never hit a serve without a communicated plan not one. And that includes second serves. The reason why both signals and talking are critical is, well, what happens when you miss your first serve into the net? Did you plan out both serves ahead of time? Of course not. Nobody nobody says, okay, on first serve, I'm going to go down the tee and poach. If I miss that one, then I'm going to go at the body and you stay. I guess it's not outside the realm of possibility that People have, have you know ever done that. I'm sure at some point somebody has, but I've watched tens of thousands of hours of amateur doubles, and I know that 99.99% of the time, when the first serve gets missed, the second serve, the uncommunicated plan that everybody knows has just taken place is, okay, back to normal doubles. Okay, second serve, so I'm just going to try to hit the serve in the box, and you cover your side, I, I cover my side, and let's just try to win. And if you want to be the best doubles player you can be, that attitude and that approach is just simply not good enough. 
you need to have signals mapped out ahead of time. So after the first service missed, you can be totally on the same page without having to talk and you both know exactly what's being planned or you can change the plan that you called ahead of time because you notice that the returner just shifted way over to try to position themselves for a forehand instead of their normal position. And so you can call an audible, which brings me right to football. Think about football. Football is American football is the perfect kind of analogous sport to tennis because there's a clear offensive team and a defensive team. There's offense and there's defense. And it's very clear which is which. Is which. One team has the ball, the other team does not. Same thing in tennis. The serving team is the offensive team. The returning team is they're defending. They're trying to keep the serving team from holding serve. Think about a football American football quarterback going out there, getting into a huddle with his team and say, all right, guys, uh, I'm going to hike the ball and you all just kind of just try to get open and I'll, I'll, I'll try to throw you the ball <laughs> without any kind of play other than just try to get open. Of course not. It would be, it would be ridiculous. Football teams spend a lot of time trying to purposefully maneuver their players into, into different directions and different formations to try to set up the most possible beneficial way for them to run a play so they can try to gain as many yards and score as many points as possible. Unfortunately, most tennis players aren't doing that and they're just trying to get open and score a point. They're just they're just trying to just do the best they can in their own little isolated world. And if you're a doubles player and that's kind of been your attitude and your MO, let me just please encourage you to start talking more and planning more, to start setting up signals ahead of time, to start using signals and matches. It will pay off big time in your doubles results. So Jason and I... Uh, beat two seeded teams. We won four matches in a row. We made it to the finals against the number one seed, the best doubles team in our region uh, in Division II NCAAs. We we lost by one break of serve in the finals. We were right there, neck and neck, and I got broken, uh, and we ended up losing by that one break. Uh, it was an incredible experience. I was super heartbroken to, to lose that match. But looking back now, the experience was incredible. I learned a tremendous amount from Jason and, and from, from just being there and experiencing that level of competition. Had we won that finals match, we would have gone on to the NCAA finals, which was the, the, final, the final 16 teams to try to win a national championship. But I uh, lost that match, unfortunately. But it ended up getting me my only NCAA ranking. So incredible experience and uh, big, big you know, credit to Jason. He taught me so much during that, that weekend. I learned a tremendous amount about partnership and about doubles tactics and about momentum and mental toughness. And so happy to share these six things with you today. Again, the six things were make them play manage your momentum, keep the pressure on, keep them guessing, give unconditional support in the way that your partner wants to be supported, and always have a plan. If you do those six things, I promise you more success in your doubles play. I hope this has been a huge help to you and eye-opening. 
If it has been, shoot me a quick email. Let me know. My email address is ian, I-A-N, at essentialtennis.com. And do me a favor and pass it on to your doubles partner or your teammates or your hitting partners at your local courts, whoever it is that you know also has a passion for the game and wants to get better. For more free game-improving instruction, be sure to check out EssentialTennis.com, where you'll find hundreds of video, audio, and written lessons. Also, be sure to subscribe to Essential Tennis on iTunes and YouTube, where we are the number one resource in the world, providing passionate instruction for passionate tennis players. Thank you so much for listening today. Take care, and good luck with your tennis.